Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Uh, So we are continuing our study in Revelation. And last week we went through the fifth trumpet of chapter 9, which was the this entity, this fallen angelic entity opening up the bottomless pit and letting out this demonic horde of, of locusts in the Bible, but they, we know from lots of different reasons they weren't really locusts, they're uh, fallen demonic entities, and that was made really clear in the, the verses, and we looked at Proverbs and a couple other spots, and it all modeled Joel chapter 2, so if you're interested, go back and, and watch the video from last week and get caught up on that, but we're continuing to study the unveiling of who Jesus is, the revelation, the apocalypsis in the Greek. It's literally the unveiling of Jesus and who he really is and who has the authority. And every one of these judgments, if you'll notice, the authority is given to them. The authority is given or delegated to these fallen angelic hosts that are really terrorizing the world. And so, who has the authority? It's Jesus, and it's the one that the world is accountable to, yet wants independence from. They really don't want to be under the rule and reign of Jesus. And you see this theme a lot in the world where people try, world governments and people try to usher in the millennium, but they do it without the king. They're trying to do it without the righteous king. And Revelation is ushering, the, ushering in the millennium with us, his people, and the king, the rightful king, ruling and reigning from earth. So it's, it is the greatest book of the Bible to study, and it's also the most complex. It's the most in-depth. It's probably the most misunderstood book of the Bible because it has over 800 allusions in the Old Testament. And for the most part, I know myself included, as a kid growing up, I had never studied the Old Testament. And so this book is just kind of foreign in that regard. But Once you unlock it and realize the entire Bible answers everything in Revelation, you just have to know where to go find it, it all makes sense. And as we continue to go through the book, we're going to claim this blessing on this study in over New Seed Church in chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. That's a, a special blessing for us as his people to read really what Jesus has preserved for us for almost 2,000 years now. And Every single Sunday before we get up here to teach, I pray that blessing over this congregation and the people listening online and those that gather or may watch the video months from now. So claim that as you go through it in your own study. The outline, we're now in the things that are hereafter. So we had who is Jesus in chapter 1, the churches in chapters 2 and 3, and then everything hereafter from chapter 4 on. So we are in the hereafter. And just as a reminder... It's the culmination of all things where everything gets put back in place where it should be. The church is back in our rightful home in heaven. Israel's back in its rightful home, the land God promised to them. And Jesus will be on his rightful throne, the throne of David, where he's not right now. He's at the right hand of the Father. 
not on his throne yet, and all evil will be bound and ultimately cast into their rightful home, the lake of fire. So we've been going through these one by one. The judgments, when they start in chapter 6, it's a series, it has a heptatic structure, so it's a series of sevens. There are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, and the seventh seal opens up the seven trumpets, the seventh trumpet opens the seven bowls, and then after the seven bowls, you get to chapter 19, and Jesus returns. And so that's where we're heading. We're heading to that point of which Jesus has prepared the earth for his arrival. And the trumpets today, we're taking the sixth trumpet. And what you'll notice, in between the sixth and the seventh of each of these, there's a break. So after the sixth seal, there's a little parenthesis, which is all of chapter seven, then the seventh seal. Same thing with the trumpets. After the sixth trumpet, we'll start next week, there's a four-chapter break from chapters 10 to 14 where God tells and describes something else that's going on during that this time period on earth. We'll look at the two witnesses, an overview of the entire Bible in chapter 12, and then all about the mark of the beast in chapter 13. So that'll be a very interesting study. But today we're taking the sixth trumpet, which is the start of uh, chapter 9, verse 13. So we went through chapter or verse 12 last time. So verse 13, and the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So here we have the golden altar again. And if you remember, everything that's going on in heaven was modeled by the tabernacle in terms of the altar, the holy of holies where God's throne is, the brazen altar, all of these things. And so here before the golden altar, it's, it says it's before God. And so the golden altar here is the true altar. It's the true altar while the tabernacle, again, was a model of that heavenly reality. And we get a a special detail here that the golden altar has four horns or four corners with four horns. And four represents wholeness in structure all over. You see that in nature and in God's word everywhere. And we'll look at some examples of of that in a minute. But the golden altar. So in Hebrews 8, 5, It says, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that is God, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. And so there's that verse that lets you know everything Moses made with the children of Israel in the wilderness was a shadow of the heavenly reality. It was a template for the true throne room of the universe. And in Exodus 40, and he put the golden altar in the tent of the congregation before the veil. So when you look at the layout of the tabernacle, the golden altar is right outside the Holy of Holies. So the four, the number four, a very fruitful study in the Bible. When you come across numbers, track down everywhere in the Bible where that number is used, and you'll get the idea of why, what God means by that number. For example, the number seven, number seven means everything that's complete that God does on behalf of man. So when you look at seven, it's, it's always completeness on behalf of what God does for man. So four, wholeness and structure. I thought these were pretty neat, so I just put a list up here of where you see this in nature, and then you can track it down in the Bible everywhere. But the DNA of all living creatures is composed of four letters, A, C, G, and T. There's four blood types, A, B, O, and A, B. Four chambers of the heart. 
the cerebrum is the largest part of the brain and divided into four lobes. The part of the eye that's visible has four parts. There are four basic types of tissue in humans. There's four types of plant tissue, types of teeth. There's four compounds in living creatures, proteins, etc. There's four fundamental forces in nature. You've got gravity, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, and electromagnetic. Then you've got matters in four states, solid, liquid, gas, and plasma. You've got four cardinal directions. I mean, it goes on and on and on. You could find four in everything in nature and what God created, right? It's his wholeness in his creation. And so the altar is his creation as the place where you get to come before the Lord and offer your sweet incense, your sacrifices, which we know from chapter 5 are the prayers of the saints. So four, be, just be aware of that. There's four in everything. You can't get away from it. And I threw this slide back in here just because as a reminder, when we talk about the golden altar, the tabernacle, this whole thing was a model of the heavenly reality, but every detail of it speaks of Jesus. And we know that from John 1.14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us, is really the word in the Greek. And so Jesus, John is linking, the Holy Spirit in John is linking Jesus to the tabernacle in that one verse. And in Hebrews 9.24, we get this, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So there you see again, just in Hebrews, the Holy Spirit is linking the tabernacle to the heavenly reality. And so you've got the whole thing is set up where every element in it emulates Jesus from John, where he has seven I am statements. When you walked in, he says, I am the living altar or living water. And there was a, a brazen altar where you would have inside of there. When he got into the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant was carried in acacia wood. It was overlaid with gold. And that the burning bush. He spoke out of it in the burning bush. It was acacia wood in the in the wilderness. It probably was the same wood they used for the helmet of thorns they put on his head. But the outside of the tabernacle was laced with all these nasty animal skins. And when you saw it, you would never want to go inside because it looked just grotesque. But once you got inside that relationship, you realized the beauty of the relationship with the Lord. And that's exactly what Isaiah 53 2 says that the, he has no form or comeliness that we should desire him. And it was the same thing. There was nothing about the tabernacle that made you want a relationship with it. But once you got inside, and then one of my favorites, the whole thing when it was transported have to be, had to be carried on silver sockets. And silver always speaks of blood throughout the entire Bible. Remember, Judas betrayed Jesus for silver, and it spoke of blood. And when it rested on silver sockets, the, the covenant with our God rests on the blood of Jesus, and that's what that represents. And then there was one way in, and Jesus said, I am the door. So you can make this whole model of how Jesus is every element of the tabernacle, but this golden altar is right there outside of the Holy of Holies, where that's where this angel is coming from in the heavenly reality. So he says, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, 
loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. So not three angels, not five angels, not two, not seven, but four. And again, it's a wholeness in structure of God's judgment at this trumpet. There's a subgroup of four even in that. But wholeness in a judgment. The great river Euphrates. So right now, there are four angels literally bound at the river Euphrates, the great river Euphrates, waiting to be loosed. And we'll see a specific time in a minute. But when you study the, the Euphrates, it's all over the Bible. And it was always the eastern boundary of the land grant to Israel and the eastern boundary of the west. Nobody could ever extend their kingdom past the Euphrates. Uh, the Roman Empire stopped at the Euphrates because they were terrified of the Parthian Empire on the other side. But when you go to Genesis 15, 18, in the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. This was before God changed his name to Abraham. And all the Lord did in that moment when he changed Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah was he added a, in Hebrew it's a he, and it literally means a, the Spirit of God, the H represents of God to Abram to make Abraham and Sarai to make Sarah. So that H, he's just adding. Hey, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river the river Euphrates. And when you see this all throughout the Old Testament, God repeats this covenant over and over and over that, hey, I have already given you this land. It's just a matter of time before you occupy it. In God's mind, it's already theirs. And he confirms it to Abraham. He confirms it to Jacob. He confirms it to Isaac. He confirms it to uh, the, all the patriarchs, he goes down the line and reconfirms this to him. Even in Joshua, when he's going in to conquer the land, Joshua 1.4, for the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. So God's reaffirming it to Joshua as he's going in to conquer the land. And it's really, it's the geographic boundary all throughout the Bible and ultimately it's also the next to last judgment on the sixth bowl. So when you go all the way forward to Revelation 16, 12, and the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And so at some point, God is going to dry up that river as a judgment. So it's the traditional boundary of the east and west. The Romans, as I mentioned, lived in fear. The Parthian Empire on the other side. Uh, references to the river date all the way back to Eden. So sin enters the world there in Genesis 2, 14 and, and 3, 6, and 7. The first murder is there, Cain and Abel. And technically, the first murder was Satan on Adam and Eve. It was Eve, really. That was the first murder. The first human murder was Cain and Abel in the Bible, and that's in Genesis 4.8. Nimrod, whose name means we will rebel, builds the Tower of Babel there in Genesis 10 and 11, and so rebellion is rooted in that, on the banks of that river ever since the Garden of Eden, and then Nimrod starts trying to bring it back in Genesis 10 and 11. In that location at Babylon on the western banks of the Euphrates, all idolatry and false worship is rooted. So every pagan practice in the world is rooted right there on the banks of the Euphrates in Babylon. Everything from 
the Easter bunny to Christmas trees, you name it, it's all there. So we can talk about that sometime when we get to Christmas. But go read Jeremiah 10 if you have questions on that. Read Jeremiah 10. Uh, It's also the place where all corruption and idolatry will finally be judged, and there's six chapters on that, Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 50 and 51, and Revelation 17 and 18. So everything that starts in Babylon is going to come full circle and be judged in Babylon on the banks of the Euphrates. And it's a really interesting study to go through those six chapters and line up the destiny that the Lord has on that, on that city on the banks of the Euphrates. It's, he's very literal and he's serious about it. And we see that in Revelation 17 and 18 soon. So the next verse, verse 15. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. So they're bound right now waiting for a specific time. And the Holy Spirit tells you it's an hour, a day, a month, and a year. So it's not going to be in some season in some year, not some month, not some specific week or day, but a specific hour he has them prepared for to be loosed on mankind at this trumpet judgment. And what I want you to notice is angels are territorial. So all over the Bible, angels have locality. They're not omnipresent like our God. And you see this most clearly in Daniel 10. And if you're not familiar with Daniel 10, Daniel is fasting and praying for 21 days. And at the end of the 21 days, a messenger is dispatched, really at the beginning of the 21 days, a messenger from the Lord is dispatched to bring a message to him. But look what the messenger says in Daniel 10, 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and 20 days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. So this messenger is dispatched to get a message to Daniel, but he encounters the prince of of the power of Persia, the kingdom of Persia, and he has to fight him for 21 days, and he still can't get through. So he goes and he gets help from Michael, which we know from the Bible is one of the chief princes of Israel. He's always a warrior prince that stands up to fight on behalf of of Israel. So he has, to, he has to go get reinforcements to come and help him. Then he's, he get, finally gets through the prince of the power of Persia and gets this message to Daniel. And after the message, he, then he says, then said he, knowest thou, therefore I come unto thee, and now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia, and when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. Now this was about 150 years before Greece was even known as a world power. And Persia had just conquered Babylon. They're rising to power. They're the dominant power in the world. And there's an entity, a principality, a power behind the throne. And you can see this all throughout the Bible. There's, there's probably one behind the United States uh, that we need to pray against and pray for our leaders of our nation. But these angels that are bound in the river Euphrates are definitely some type of fallen angels, otherwise they wouldn't be bound. They were judged for something, and they're in chain there waiting to be loosed for, a, for an hour, a very specific hour. So they're given authority to slay a third part of men. And all the way back to the fourth seal, when, you got, when we looked at the, the pale horse, that fallen entity is given power over a fourth part of man. And you see this in Revelation 6, 8. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, 
And his name that set on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. So it's intensifying as you go. And we talked about this in the introduction about how it is a logarithmic scale. Every one of these judgments intensifies and gets bigger and bigger and bigger as we go. It's exactly how Jesus describes it in the New Testament with as birth pains, as the pains of a woman in childbirth. And as those contractions continue, they just get intensified and quicker. Same thing. So it's intensifying from a fourth to a third. So lest you have any desire to, you should not try to take on angels, okay? <laughs> just, just don't do that. Do what in the book of, of Jude, uh, we see that Michael and Satan fought over the body of Moses, and there's a specific reason for that we'll look at in Revelation 11. They were fighting over the body of Moses, and Michael did not fight him. He said, the Lord rebuke you. And you, you really want to, if you have to go into spiritual warfare against something, you don't want to be the one going. You want the king to go on your behalf, and you just follow him into it, okay? Just like, just like when Joshua was fighting at Jericho. He did not fight the battle. Jesus is there in Joshua 5 with a sword drawn, and he's the one that goes out and conquers Jericho. Joshua just happens to follow him, and Jesus is saying, okay, now I need you to do this. Okay, Lord, I will do that. Now do this. Okay, I'm doing that. So the commander, let the commander of the Lord's host go out on your behalf. And I can, if you need some help with that or need to learn about that, please talk to me, seriously, because I've, I've done it a lot the last few years. So in one night, one angel goes and kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers to answer Hezekiah's petition for help. And if you remember the story from 2 Kings, Israel is surrounded by the Assyrian army, and Sennacherib sends Hezekiah a letter. And basically, Hezekiah is reading the letter, and it says, hey, don't try to do anything. We are going to kill you. We're encamping around Israel we are going to starve you out, and basically it's, there's going to be a famine. And Hezekiah does not know what to do. So Hezekiah takes the letter. This is step one in your spiritual warfare, if, you, if you're in it or in anything in your life. Hezekiah takes the letter, and he goes in before the altar of God, and he lays it on the altar, and he says, Lord, I don't know what to do with this, but you do. You are going to have to step in and answer. And of course, the Lord says, okay, Hezekiah, I've got it. Don't worry about it. But the first step was Hezekiah humbling himself, praying, going before the Lord, and laying that letter out. And so if you've never done this, if you're in something in your life, what I recommend people do, anything you're in, write it down. And you go into your closet, you close the door, you get on your knees, and you lay it on the altar of God. And you say, Lord, I don't know what to do with this, but you do. And whatever it is, whatever your answer is, however it shows up, we will rejoice and glory and praise in your name, but you have to take this situation. It's too big for me. And that's what Hezekiah does. And the Lord answers in a mighty way, because in 2 Kings 19, verse 35, we see, And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000 soldiers, 104 score and 5,000. Four score is 80. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. And so get the picture. The Syrian army is surrounding them. 
They think they've got them locked in. They're going to bed, hanging out with campfires and stuff. They wake up in the morning, and somewhere around every other soldier is just dead in their tent, slayed by this angel that the Lord dispatched. So that happened one night. Uh, God controls this army. He's got the authority. He dispatches them and brings them back how he pleases. One angel with a slaughter weapon starts to wipe out Jerusalem when David sinned. If you don't remember this from 1 Chronicles David took a census of the people, and he wasn't supposed to. God did not want him to number the people. But Satan basically lied and twisted to him that he should. And it was all rooted in pride, because if he numbered the people, then his pride would be lifted up that, look at what a great army and nation I have created. Right? That's why the Lord, the Lord knew that was going to happen, so he's trying to keep him out of it. But David went about his own way and did it. And so the Lord comes to him and says, all right, you have three options. And he gives them these three judgments. And the last one was, or you could fall into the hands of the living God. And that's the one David chooses because he says, surely our God is merciful. He will have mercy on us and forgive us. And what happens is in 1 Chronicles 21, and God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, so there's an angel destroying the city of God right here, and God has dispatched it as a judgment to David. Behold, and he repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed, it is enough, stay now thine hand. See, Jesus at the word of his mouth commands these armies. It's by the word of his power, that's it. His word, they bend and answer. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, that's up uh, Mount Moriah, the Jebusite, north of Israel. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and the heaven. So wherever this angel was standing, it was between earth and heaven. Probably in some, in one of the dimensions we don't have access to from quantum physics, and we talk about that occasionally here more in Bible study. But uh, this angel, David, is given the opportunity to see this angel standing between the earth and heaven. And it's the Lord's just kind of peeling back the veil a little bit. And he repented him of his evil. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 16. Saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and the heaven, having drawn a sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders of Israel who were clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. So they're repenting. And David said unto God, it is not I that commanded the people to be numbered. Is it not I? Even it is I that have sinned and done evil indeed, but as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me and on my father's house, but not on my people, that they should be plagued. So David is crying out to God, please withhold your judgment from your people and from Jerusalem. Let it be on me. Okay, so you don't want to mess around with angels. So these angels are loose in in Euphrates. And they're getting ready to be, they've been loosed to take out a third part of man. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000,000. I heard the number of them. So you have an army of 200 million fallen entities of some kind that are out there ready to attack the world as the Lord continues to slowly step back one at a time, really driving, there's a twofold purpose of it, really threefold, but to drive Israel to the brink of repentance from Hosea 5.15. So he's trying to petition them 
to get them to petition his return. They have to cry out and ask for forgiveness for him to come back, and that's Hosea 5.15. But the other side is to get the whole world to repent at the Lord, and so for the Lord before he comes back. So 200 million people or entities of some kind. And thus I saw the horses in the vision and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire and of jackneth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. So whatever these things are, you don't want to run into them, but they, they're described similar to the bottomless pit, the locust from the bottomless pit we studied last time. And really, it's I'll mention it again, it's everything emulated in Hollywood movies, right, with the alien invasions, the these things coming out of nowhere and attacking humanity, and you've got to get armed up and go fight. They get all of this out of chapter 9 in Revelation, the whole thing. So whatever they are, they're different than the demonic hordes from the bottomless pit in the fifth trumpet because uh, they are described somewhat similar, but they have different characteristics. So in verse 18, by these three was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. So fire-breathing smoke and brimstone being thrown out of these guys, and whatever they are, you really don't want to mess with them, is the bottom line. So that was verse 18. 19, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. So they have tails like serpents, not scorpions like last time. So that's one way you know they're different. But verse 20, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not. So this is a common theme throughout Revelation that the people on the earth, for the most part, do not repent. There is a vast majority of the people that do, but there's a lot that do not. And I can't imagine being so cold-hearted and stubborn that all of this is going on and these angelic beings are fighting all around you and all you have to do is call on the name of Jesus and you'll be saved out of it and yet they don't. Yet they repent not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils or demons, idols of gold and silver, brass, stone, and of wood which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Now this is really important because you will become like whatever it is that you worship. And for them, they are worshiping idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood that can neither see nor hear nor walk. Now, are those idols cold, hard-hearted? Yes. They, they have no response. And it's the same thing here. They're not repenting because they don't have a response. They're unresponsive because of what they've been worshiping. And it's one of a number of infinite reasons why you need to worship Jesus. Because the more you worship him, the more you become like him. And was Jesus a prophet? Was he loving? Was he giving? Was he, did he have understanding of the scriptures? You go down all the list of the characteristics of Jesus. The more and more you worship him, the more and more you become like him in all of those areas. And that's, it's so critical to understand that. But This concept is in Psalms twice and in Proverbs, but one of my favorites is Psalms 115. So, starting in verse 3, But our God is in heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols, as in the heathen, the earth dwellers, are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. 
They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. In other words, they came and speak. They that make them are like unto them. So there's the concept. See, when you worship it, you become like it. So is everyone that trusteth in them. So these idols, and you know, you read this and you think, well, you know, we don't do that today. We don't fashion little golden statues and put them on a shelf, at least not here in Oklahoma City for the most part, but some places around the world maybe. But the worshiping of these idols, it's the same thing that we do in our culture today. You know, whether you worship success, um, a title, a career, a job, whatever it is, if you worship something other than Jesus, it's idolatry, period. And so Psalms 115, just go and read that. It just cracks me up how the Lord is so, he just makes it so simple, right? They worship these things, they came and speak. What is going on? And we worship the one that wrote down everything by the word of his mouth for us to have. So Revelation 9.21, neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. So even what they repented not of is a grouping of four. So the judgment is a grouping of four, and what they repented not of is a grouping of four, and the four angels. So they repented not is all the way back in Revelation 6, if you remember this. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. So they're Again, they're not repenting. Instead, they're, fault. they're crying out for the rocks to kill them instead of crying out for the lamb to save them. And in Revelation 21, 7 and 8, you get those that don't repent, these guys right here, that are not repenting of their sorceries, fornications, thefts, and murders. They have an inheritance coming up, and it's the end of the book. But our inheritance is also there in Revelation 21, 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. In the next verse, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's their inheritance. That's where these folks are going. And your mission right now while we have time is to make sure we get as many of them out as we can. That's the goal. So I think that was the last verse in chapter 9. So a call to action. I, I kind of ad-libbed this last time, but I'll just, I wrote it in this time so you guys would have it written down. But, you know, the goal for us in this church is to strengthen the body of Christ. Yes, we're going to bring people to Jesus along the way, but what's really going to happen is as believers come in and they're strengthened by studying the depth of God's word, it's going to naturally be attractive to those that don't know the Lord because they're going to see that, wow, you guys really do walk differently. You handle things in life differently. You, have over, you are overjoyed in your life. You have peace in the midst of a storm. You have contentment. You're, you seem to have everything you ever need and are in want of nothing because Jesus is providing in some supernatural way. Well, there's only one way to build your faith, and that's what we're trying to do in this church in New City. And faith is not some 
nebulous thing that's undefined. It's in Hebrews 11.1. What is it? What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is, there's no faith in what you see anywhere. Faith is, it's the evidence of things not seen. And why is it important? Well, Hebrews 11.6, for without faith, it is impossible to please him. So you can't please God if you don't have faith. So you need to know how to get it. And that's in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so that's your guidebook. To build your faith and be able to take on anything in your life, you have to be in the word of God. That's the only way it can happen. There is no faith in seeing miracles and seeing God's deliverance out of things. Now that strengthens you to press on, but you have to, you have to build your faith in the word of God. And his word delivers all the time. That's exactly why Israel fell two days after they crossed through the Red Sea. They're the, the generation that saw more miracles in their lives than any other generation to date. Uh, now, there will be a generation that sees more, that one in the book of Revelation, but they had no faith because of, they just saw it all. They didn't listen to God's word. And because they didn't have faith, two days later, they're casting, again, a little golden statue right in a fire, that, and they claim deliverance from it by this golden calf. And it's probably the same golden calf we have sitting on, on Wall Street in New York City, but that's an aside. Uh, but we do the same thing here, right? We fashion little golden bulls and oxen and put it out there as our source of provision, and it's not. Jesus is. But build your faith. That's the call to action for, for if you are in Christ, this is the call for you. You have to build your faith. And if you're not on a daily plan to read the Bible chronologically every year, get on one. It takes you 15 minutes a day. Get a notepad, write down everything you don't understand, and take it to him to answer it. And that's 1 John 2.27, that you need no man to teach you, but the anointing of the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. So take it to him and let him guide you through the greatest adventure you'll ever go on, which is to study the depths of God's word because it will write everything in your life. Now, if you want to be able to do that, you have to first be saved. So if you aren't saved or if you need Jesus into your heart and you're watching this online, it's really simple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. He paid it all. It's a gift. It's not a purchase. You don't purchase it. It's a gift you receive from him. He already purchased it for you. And so it's that simple. You can make sure you've got a one-way ticket. In Isaiah 118, this is what happens when you make that plea to him. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And when you accept him, that's what happens. Everything you did in Hebrews, he not only forgives, but he forgets. He turns it from crimson to wool. And then once you do this, you have the Holy Spirit, you have understanding, you have the anointing of the teacher from 1 John 2.27, and you can start your adventure of reading through God's word cover to cover and writing everything down and allowing the Holy Spirit to lead you through that and to teach you. So that's the end of chapter 9. Uh, next time we'll pick up in chapter 10 and start in that little break, but I'll close us out in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this time together. I thank you, Lord, for the gift of your son, Jesus. I thank you that we serve a living king who has a mouth and does speak. 
that we serve a God that writes his word down, and you are a man of your word, or else you wouldn't have written it down. And so we thank you for that. God, I just pray a special blessing upon everybody that was here this morning and those that were out traveling. God, that you'd be with them, bring them home safely. We look forward to seeing them next week. And if there's anyone out there that needs you, that needs to give their life to you and get saved today, Lord, let them fall on their knees and give their hearts and their lives to you in a mighty way and to start a new life, to be born again from John chapter 3. We thank you, Jesus, that you clarified that, that you must be born again. And once you're born, you can't be unborn. So Lord, we just thank you that we can't lose our salvation, that it's in your hands from John 10. And Lord, it's, it's all you are asking us to do is to get serious and right in your word and to live our lives holy and in and, and complete submission and fullness for you. So thank you, Jesus. All these things we pray in your mighty name. Amen.